We're going to jump right in today. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 20 or fire up the app if you've got that or the Bible app on your phone. Our ushers have Bibles that you can use if you want a paper Bible in your hand. If you're old school like me, you can uh, just raise your hands. They've got Bibles you can use. They've actually got a Bible you can have. If you don't have a Bible at home, just raise your hand, wave at the ushers. They'll give you one, put your name in it and keep it. We've given away more than a thousand since our church began uh, and we'd love for you to have one to just take home to have around your house. And we are studying the Ten Commandments because we want to learn how to live in relationship with God. And we want to learn how to live in relationship with people. And we believe the Ten Commandments teach us how to do that. But here's what you need to understand. For those of you who may say, you know, I feel oppressed by the commandments of God. I feel oppressed by the mandates of religion. Here's what you need to understand. We said last week that before God gave us rules, he offered relationships. Before God ever gave us a single rule, he offered us relationship. Make sure you pull out your notes so you can follow along from your bulletin or fire those up on the app. In Exodus 19, God said, listen, I'd like to live in relationship with you, and here's what that will look like. I'd like for you to be my treasured possession. I'd like you to be my kingdom of priests, which basically means an entire nation of people who will help the world understand who God is. And I'd like you to be a holy nation, which the word holy means set apart for a specific purpose. God said, I'd like to use you to be special. So God in Exodus 19 said, if you would accept my invitation to be my treasured possession, my kingdom of priest, a holy nation, let me know, and I'll tell you how to do that. And the people of Israel said, we'd like that. We'd like to be in relationship with God. We don't know everything about you, but we trust you. We've seen your power, and if we can be in relationship with you, we'll follow you. In 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, Jesus invites us to the exact same relationship. The Apostle Peter said that anyone who has accepted the invitation to become a follower of Jesus, and if you're here today and you're a Christian, that's you. We have every week people who attend our church who are not Christians. So you're going to learn today how a Christian should live their life. But if you are a Christian today and you've accepted the invitation to follow Jesus, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 says, As a Christian, you have become God's treasure possession. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. So if you've said yes to following Jesus, God says, here's how you follow me. And he says that through the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus chapter 20, we read the ten. And here they are. Starting in verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment number three, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Commandment number four, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Commandment number five, verse 12. 
Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Commandment number six, you shall not murder. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Number nine, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Number ten, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There are the ten commandments. In the next six weeks, we're going to study all six, and here's what we're going to learn. The first four commandments are given to us so that we can learn how to live our relationship with God. First four all deal with our relationship with God. God says, I'd like to have a relationship with you. For those of you who have said, okay, God said, here's how it works, and he gave us four commands. The last six deal with our relationships with people. God said, if you're going to represent me, here's how you're going to interact with people. And again, the Bible says Israelites said, okay. But here's the deal. Before we jump into all ten, the reality is this, is, is I have begun to study the commandments and begin to look at them, learning for myself and learning to teach. Here's what I've learned. The way we respond to the first three commands, commandments tells us a lot about how we see God. As a matter of fact, if we don't respond properly to the first three, the last seven really don't matter. I mean, as good and moral as we might want to be, if the first three don't hit our hearts, the next seven will not be a part of our life and that's just the way it works, unfortunately. Um, how many of you are excited for your kids to go back to school? I mean, I know it's been less than a month, but some of you are, yes, yeah, some of you are like, Rachel, I see that hand. Like some of you are like, yes, me, I'll put a card in the box. Um, like we're ready for our kids to go back to school. My kids this summer have been having a whirlwind of a summer that seems as busy, if not busier than school. But one of the things they've started doing in their downtime is they've started binge-watching The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, I don't know. Those of you who maybe grew up in my generation from 90 to 96, this show on about Will and Carlton and Hillary and Ashley and Uncle Phil and Aunt Vivian and Carlton uh, and, and Jeffrey the butler, um, they started watching the show. And like every day, it's like a Fresh Prince of Bel-Air party at our house all day long. And as Christian's watching the show... And enjoying it, he says, you know, Dad, what, like, what shows, what other shows did you watch when you were a kid? Because, like, this is so much better than the Disney Channel. Um, so, you know, I started telling him, you know, some of the shows I watched. And he's like, well, what old shows did you watch? Like, like, like as if Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is an old show. Because it's from the 90s. He's like, well, what old shows did you watch that were, like, from before your time as a kid? So I started, you know, thinking about some of the old shows that I watched and talking to Christian about some of those. And I thought, you know, one of the shows I watched was a show called I Dream of Jeannie. Have any of you seen the show I, I Dream of Jeannie? If you've seen it, probably you saw a rerun of it. Because it originally aired from 1965 to 1970. So if you, like, if you watched it in its original time slot, like, you're probably not using the app today. You, you know, like, you probably have a King James Bible and, like, a, you know, a pencil, and you're probably taking copious notes. We're, we're glad that you're here, but most of us probably watched the rerun version of I Dream of Genie. It was a show about a, a Navy pilot, a Navy commander named Tony Nelson, who crashed on uh, a deserted island, and while he was waiting to be rescued on this island, there was this bottle on the beach that had been kind of buried in sand, that all by itself rolled up to him and kind of bumped into him. So he picked up the bottle and he started dusting off the sand. And poof, out popped a genie named Genie. And the first thing she did when the genie saw Commander Nelson, she'd been in this bottle for 2,000 years. She instantly fell in love with him and she ran up to him and gave him a kiss. But she didn't speak any English. So he realized he was a genie, began making wishes. One of his first wishes it was, was that she could speak English so that he could talk to her. And she ended up like not being a genie who gave three wishes, but became a genie who lived with him and gave him as many wishes as he wanted. And he ended up getting married to her, and she lived on a bottle 
in his living room on a shelf when anyone else was around. And when he needed anything, she would pop out. And even after they married, she never called him hubby, sweetheart, husband, never called him Tony. If you remember, do you remember what she always called him? Master. She always called him master. You know, when I think about the way most people see God today, in my head I think about I dream of Jeannie. Because I think there are far too many people who their relationship with God sounds similar. They found themselves at a a spot in life where they were alone. Somehow through circumstances, God bumped into them. And they began a, a a pretty great relationship with God. But their relationship with God was one where they kind of, they took him home, they put him in his place, maybe they put him in his bottle. And when they need God, they'll let God know, like more than three wishes, that's a pretty cool thing. But like, God stays on the shelf until you need him. And when you need him... None of us would say this, but it's almost as if when we call, we expect God to say, how can I help you, master? Hey, God, I need, um, I'm going to need a job today. And it's like God says, well, how can I help you, master? Hey, God, I'm not feeling good today. You know, I'm, I'm going to need a blessing on my health. And God's like, how can I help you, master? Hey, God, I'm, I'm in kind of a financial crunch. And we kind of, so many people see God as a God that like exists to serve them and they are the master rather than God being the God that we serve. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, you can't dig very deep into the Ten Commandments before you see that the most important part of the Ten Commandments is how we view our relationship with God and how we see God. And I'm going to give you three words today that summarize how God wants to be seen. And my hope is that as you go here today, you're going to have to kind of chew on these words and ask what they mean for your life and how things might have to change if this is really who God is in a relationship with us. You know, commandment number one speaks to a God who has authority. Do you like that word, authority? I mean, you can almost, in, in today's American culture, you can feel people cringe when you just say the word authority. When you actually try to exhibit authority over someone, you can actually feel people repel. Because authority is a word today that most people pull back from a bit because of what it symbolizes in our life, or maybe where some authority was abused at some point, and we have decided never again will we allow anyone to have authority over us in any area of our life. But Exodus 23 kind of sets the standard pretty clear when God said, here's what our relationship is going to look like. Exodus 23 says, it's one of the shortest commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Basically, he's saying, I'm in charge. I'm going to be first. I'm going to be God, you're going to be a follower. If we're going to live in relationship, I'm going to be in charge. Do any of you remember recess? I used to love recess. Like that was my favorite part of school to this day. I remember how sad I was when I went to middle school and we didn't have recess anymore. Even today I'll be sitting around at work and I'll think, you know, I just need a recess. You know, if I could just go outside for 15 or 20 minutes and play and then maybe drink some milk and take a nap, this would be a better day. Like I love the elementary school format and I love recess. But I don't know that I'd like recess as much because I don't think you're allowed to play the games at recess today that I played every day of my life. We play tackle football almost every day. You're not hardly allowed to play that like in pads on a real field anymore with referees and everything else. So it's like, okay, well, I wouldn't be able to play that. We played, if we weren't playing football, we were playing dodgeball. And I mean, it was like crazy dodgeball, which is, you know, highly overseen with usually, and in my days, um, you know, the types of balls that weren't real soft, they kind of hurt. And every now and then I went to a school that you know, wasn't real big, didn't have a lot of money, in kind of a poor section of southern Ohio. Every now and then we'd only have one ball. 
So we would play a version of dodgeball called wall ball. Has anyone ever played wall ball? Here's what wall ball is. There's only one ball. So everyone lines up against a wall and the kid with like the strongest arm stands 10 feet from you and just gets to throw it at the people on the wall and you have to dodge. And if you can catch it or you cannot be knocked out, like maybe you'll get a chance to throw. Like that, those were the games that we played. Or we played Red Rover. Remember the game Red Rover? Red Rover, Red Rover. I dare you come over and break our arms, you know, because everybody would like link up and dislocate. I'm like, we're not allowed to play most of those games anymore. But I loved recess. I hated indoor recess. And there's some elementary teachers in the house that like, you know, just verbally said amen. Because like indoor recess is just organized chaos. And the game that I hated the most at indoor recess was follow the leader. Did you ever have to play follow the leader at indoor recess? There's only one position in the game, follow the leader, that's any fun. And you know what position that is? The leader. Like if you get to be in charge of that game, follow the leader is really fun. If you don't get to be in charge, it's the worst game in the history of the world. And I feel like a lot of people feel that way spiritually. As long as we get to be the leader spiritually, Christianity is fun. Christianity is fulfilling. Following Jesus is worth it. But if we have to let God be the leader, and all of a sudden we just have to follow, some of us change our view of how we see God. And what you need to realize is every command of Scripture in every area of your faith begins and ends with the question of God's authority. Is he in charge of your life? Will you do whatever he says? Don't answer those questions lightly because those are hard questions. To go back to another show from my childhood, who's the boss? Maybe you remember that show with Tony and Angela? Who's the boss of your life? For a couple years, I've had those words written on a whiteboard in my office. Who's the boss? So I can remember that God is my authority. And probably in the next few years, I'll do a six to eight week series on biblical authority, on the authority of God. And and we'll really see if God is in charge or if God is not in charge. But we learned something interesting about authority in the gospel of Luke. Luke, who was a Gentile doctor, who was a historian who wrote about the story of Jesus' life, told the story of a centurion. A centurion was like a Roman commander that led a legion of a hundred people. He told a story of a, a Roman centurion who had a servant who was sick, and he sent his people to Jesus and said, ask Jesus if he'll come and heal my servant. And they went and got Jesus to heal the servant. And while Jesus was coming, the centurion thought, you know, this is dumb. Jesus, Jesus was in Cana. He had to go to Galilee. It's about a 45-minute drive. I've driven it several times. It would have been you know, probably almost a day's walk, pretty rough terrain. Um, while Jesus was still a long way off, the centurion said, that, don't tell Jesus he doesn't have to come. But he said, tell Jesus to just say the word. Tell him he doesn't have to come. Tell him to just say the word and my servant will be healed because I believe Jesus is in charge of everything and he can do anything that he wants. And here's what he told his servants to tell Jesus in Luke 7, 8, 9. He said, tell Jesus to just say the word for I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes. I tell that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him he said I tell you I've not found such great faith even in Israel. Jesus said even among religious people I haven't met many people who say God's in charge of everything so just say the word. God is in charge of life and death. God is in charge of health and sickness. God is in charge of my marriage and my family and my career. Like God has the final say on everything. So God, just just say the word and whatever you say will be done. I understand you're in control of everything. God said, not even among religious people. I've met people who really believe God is in charge of everything and whatever he says goes. Is that how you see God? 
you know, a key faith question for all of us to ask in this lifetime and to process the answer for a lifetime is, is this, is God really in charge of your life? I mean, I want you to think about that for a second. That's a big question. Is God really in charge of your life? You know, most Christians that I meet, I mean, some of the most committed and faithful Christians that I meet serve God in a capacity of their life that kind of looks like the flow chart behind me. Jesus is, he's a very important part of their life, but they are in charge of their life. Most of us, if I were to say, hey, list the top three to five things in your life. Most of us kind of, these, these would be the things that we would say are really important to us. My family's really, really important to me. Some would say my job is really, really important to me. My friends are really, really important to me. The hobbies that I participate in really have a big part of my heart. And a lot of us who are in the room today would say Jesus is really important. Like if you were to look at the chart of my life, like these things really come first. But there's one problem. Most of us keep ourselves in charge. We are the authority. We got a family and we got some friends and we've got all this. And Jesus takes care of all the spiritual stuff. Like that's his box. But we are the authority. And when you look at what the Bible says in commandment number one, the flowchart that God wants us to live with is the one behind me now that has Jesus at the top and everything else underneath. You say, well, what is everything else? That's all of life. I had a professor in seminary who taught Hebrew and Greek, and he, would always, he was always unpacking English words for us in a better version. But he loved the English word all because he would always say this, all means all, and that's all all can mean. We'd say, what? And he would say, every time you see all in Scripture, all means all, and that's all that all can mean. There's a lot of Christians that say, Jesus has control of all of my life. And you say, what do you mean by all? And you say, the spiritual things. And and commandment number one says, no. Commandment number one says, God says, I'm in charge. I'm in the center. Everything else comes under me. Is that the picture of Jesus that you live by? Because you're, you're not going to be able to submit to every command of God until you fully submitted to the first command of God. Because when you pick and choose the commands of God to submit to, you become God. He becomes a good consultant on spiritual things. But when you get to pick and choose, you stay at the top of your chart. And folks, I want to be honest with you. If, you're, if the flowchart of your life looks like me first... And I control everything. Jesus controls the spiritual things, but everything else in life is mine. You will struggle forever to be in an intimate relationship with God because God says, I come first and I am in charge. So Christian, how do I get from me in charge to Jesus in charge? Well, that's where commandment number two picks up. Commandment number two is a commandment of priority. Commandment number one is authority. God says, I'm in charge. Commandment number two tells us how to practically place God in charge in our life. Verses 4 through 6 give us commandment number 2. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." You know, the Israelites were told, don't have any foreign gods, don't create any foreign gods, don't create or shape any idols. Do you know that every time we look in Scripture and we even look through history, that almost all foreign gods were shaped around fleshly concerns? Say, what do you mean by that? That's a weird word. 
When I say fleshly, I'm borrowing from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5 that says every human being lives with kind of two, two natures. They've got the flesh that's always worried about them, and then they've got the spirit which is always worried about how they're in relationship with God. And Paul says these come in conflict with each other. In Galatians 5, 16 and 17, he says, So I say, walk by the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the spirit, the spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not to do whatever you want. So when I say foreign gods are fleshly concerns, we see throughout history that cultures would create gods that would take care of them and their most basic human needs, but the gods revolved around them. Do you know that the country of Egypt had more than 40 different gods at the time of the Exodus? Moses walked in. Do you, do you know that every act of Moses in the book of Exodus was a deliberate attack against one of the gods of Egypt, proving to the Egyptian people that the God of Israel trumped all the gods of Egypt? You know, the gods, the, Egypt had a god of snakes and serpents, which when Moses threw down his staff that became a serpent and then swallowed the kind of spirit serpents of the Egyptians, it would have proven to the Egyptians, wow, well, that God's not as strong as the God of Israel. Do you know that the Egyptians had a God of magic who when Moses would do a miracle and the magicians would try to recreate it, they would realize, you know, this Egyptian God of magic is nowhere near the God of Israel. You know that the Egyptians had a God of the Nile River who controlled it and made sure it protected the people uh, along the Nile River Valley. But when God turned that Nile River to blood, they thought, well, God is stronger than the God of the Nile. Do you know they had a God of frogs? who when it lost control of the frogs in Egypt and they couldn't control them or get them out, that the God of Israel was the only one who could control the frogs. You know they had a God of insects who controlled the gnats and the flies and the locust plagues that came. Do you know the Egyptians had a God of livestock that protected their livestock for themselves and for their families? So when the plague of livestock came, they realized that God couldn't protect them against the God of Israel either. Do you know that they had a God of the storms? So when the hail and the lightning came, they realized that their God once again was defeated. Do you know they worshipped the God of the sun? The sun God was the most powerful God in Egypt. His name was Ra, R-A or R-A-H. If you've ever seen some of those National Treasure movies or even some of those Night at the Museum movies, Akhmen Ra, a lot of the Egyptian pharaohs were named something Ra because they were literally the son of the sun God. That's how that works. You know, there was a God that protected their firstborn children and the legacy of their life. And each and every time, God stepped up and said, you've made this little God for yourself, but it is nothing compared to the God of the universe. When you look at the gods of the Old Testament, we see nations that had created gods to serve them. We see nations that had created gods that they could pull out of the body or or the bottle so that God would show up and say, yes, master, how can I serve you? And blink their eyes and do what they needed to do. So the Canaanites, where the Israelites were moving into, had a god named Baal, B-A-A-L. Baal was the storm god. He was in charge of weather. Why? Because the land of Canaan was in charge of agriculture. And the agriculture was the industry that they sold to the world. So they served a God who would give them rain, who would produce crops, who would give them money to take care of themselves. Basically, they had created a God who would take care of them first. That was his role. There was the Asherah God that was served among the Canaanite people, which was a goddess of fertility. Because in those days, the more kids you have, the more wealthy your family would become. The more kids you have, the longer they would take care of you. The more kids you have, the the more well-known you would be in society. So they worshipped a God who would make them well-known in the goddess of Asherah. The Philistine people worshipped a God named Dagon. 
Dagon was a god who had kind of the, the lower body of a man and the torso of a fish because the Philistine people lived along, along the Mediterranean Sea and literally their god was the fish in the sea. They were a fishing people. It was their industry and their livelihood. If the fish were biting, it was a good day. If the fish were not, everything was ruined. So they created gods that would serve them and I feel like we've done that in America today. We've tried to figure out how to create gods who will serve us. And God says, don't do that. Don't create gods that will serve you first. All these gods in the Old Testament, all the gods in secular history are gods who place the priority on us and what we need, but not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible focuses on him and who he is first in his relationship with us. That's why Jesus in Matthew 6, when he talked about people who always worried about taking care of themselves first, worshiping God second, said this in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Stop worrying about yourself. Saying, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things are going to be given to you as well. Listen, making God our priority protects us. Because everything but God makes a bad God. I don't know if you've realized that yet. But everything but God makes a bad God. If you ask me what I spend my most ministry counseling time doing, I go back to this flow chart of me. And I look at people who have made these areas God in their life. A lot of people in our community that their family was their God. And when mom and dad got divorced or started fighting, their world fell apart. Because their God was a God that wasn't sustainable. Maybe you're in here today and your God is your family. And before anything else, you try to hold your kids and your spouse and everything together. But when the family begins to crumble, your world begins to crumble because you're serving a God that wasn't intended to give you everything you need. Maybe you're someone who your job is your God. And you didn't really know it, but when you lost that job or you got a demotion or you were overlooked for a promotion or you got laid off, you found your entire world falling apart because the job was the thing that was everything in your life. It was the thing that took care of you. But it was a God that made a bad God. Or maybe it's friends. Look at our teenagers sitting here today that'll go to camp with us next week. And I look at the way our teenagers have made the social world kind of their God. I watch kids in our youth group count how fast they get how many likes from people in their school. And I see how crushed a student can be when someone doesn't like their Instagram picture or follow them on Snapchat fast enough. Because what they've done is they have made a God out of a friend. And when this friend doesn't give you exactly what you're looking for at exactly the right time, your world begins to fall apart. But there's no friendship in the world that's meant to give you everything that you need in life. People who have hobbies where they've gotten injuries or they've just just gotten too old and they're not able to do what they love to do anymore and their life begins to fall apart because their hobbies not there. You see, every God but God makes a bad God. And when it falls apart, God said, I told you not to hang on to that is the most important thing in life because it will always let you down, but I will never let you down. And it's interesting because how you feel about what I've said, number one and number two, authority and priority actually takes us to number three. Because if you don't receive what I'm saying today, if we all don't receive what Moses is writing with reverence, commandment number three is about reverence, then we've really lost the battle spiritually. You see, there are a lot of people in this room today who would call themselves Christians. 
one point in your life you said yes to following Jesus and, and you've really tried to do that. Maybe up and down through your life, maybe in and out of church. But you sincerely say, man, I really, I really want to follow Jesus and I love Jesus and I want to know more about him. I'm here because I'm trying to follow better. And you hear me talking about God being in authority in your life and you think, you know, that's not me, but it needs to be. And you hear me talking about making God priority in your life and you think, man, I'm not really there, but I should be. There's this real spirit of reverence that's going to pull you forward spiritually because the spirit of God really lives in your heart. But there are others of you who would say the same thing. I'm a Christian. At one point in my life, I prayed a prayer, I raised a hand, I walked an aisle, I've been baptized. Jesus is important to me. But you hear me say that God should have absolute authority and you think, no way. And you hear me say that God should have absolute priority and you think, no way. What you're saying is commandment number three is so far removed from your heart that I'm not going to view the things of God with great reverence or respect because they're just not that important to me, which would tell me you have not really entered into the relationship that God has offered you. You may have something spiritually going on, but it's not the relationship that God offers because that one has has reverence is mandatory. Look at verse 7. I believe this is the most misunderstood commandment of our age. It says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Maybe you grew up in like I did in the kind of the King James Version and you heard this commandment, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And you learned in some Sunday school class that one of the Ten Commandments was that you could not say a cuss word after saying the name God because that, was, that violated a commandment. Or you could not say Jesus Christ unless you were like really referring to the person of Jesus. That is not what that command means at all. That command actually has, that commandment actually has very little to do with what you say. The phrase 4,000 years ago to misuse the name or to take in vain a name means to strip the name of significance or to make it appear meaningless. God said, don't go around telling people you follow me and that you have a relationship with me. But show them that that relationship has had no significant impact on your life. That won't work. Don't go around telling people that you love me and you follow me, but the reality is me and your life has been utterly meaningless outside of going to church every now and then. God said, I command you, don't step into relationship with me unless you're willing to have significant and meaningful relationship with me. He's not saying don't cuss after the word God. He's not saying don't say Jesus Christ when you're mad. Now, if we have reverence, we won't do those things, right? But we've taken that commandment and narrowed it down to two phrases instead of the reality of God saying what this means is don't think that being connected to me isn't significant. Don't think that being connected to me isn't meaningful. In 1865, you know the story, a man named John Wilkes Booth shot President Lincoln, jumped down on a stage and fled to what would later be his death. But when he crossed the Virginia state line into Maryland, Uh, He connected with a doctor by the name of Dr. Samuel Mudd who helped set his leg and get him back out on the road. He became known later as one of the Lincoln conspirators. A few days later, they catch up with Booth. They would shoot him dead in a barn that was on fire. But this conspirator who helped him get away would become known as one of the worst people in American history. And as a matter of fact, his name became so synonymous with people who were insignificant and meaningless, that even today, 150 years later, 
If somebody does something really bad that really stains their reputation, there are still people who will use the phrase, his name is, his name is mud. It means he's a terrible, meaningless person. Can you imagine having a phrase named after you where your name stood for meaningless, horrible person? God said there are a lot of Christians who when they go out into the world, they live their life in a way that makes it seem like I am insignificant. There are a lot of Christians who go out in the world and when they leave church, they live their life in a way that makes it seem like everything that I'm trying to pour into them is really meaningless in the real world. And command number three says, don't do that. You see, this command really deals with what I would call our approach to God and the things of God. This command shows us our heart towards the authority and the priority of God. Because it allows God to be in charge and it makes us willing followers. You know, there's a few things in my life that I, that I don't like to do very often anymore. Um, one of them is wear a suit and tie, like at any time ever. You can tell if you come here often. The only time I wear a suit and tie is on Easter and Christmas, and that's really only because my wife makes me. If it, if it wasn't for that, I probably wouldn't even do it. That's not my attire that I'm most comfortable in. I don't like to wait in lines, um, like anywhere. I don't like to wait in lines at a four-way stop. don't like to wait in lines at a restaurant. don't like to wait in line at Chick-fil-A at the lunch hour. Um, don't like to wait in line at the DMV. Like, I'm just a point where I like to get in, get out. I, I don't like to wait. Um, and I don't like to waste time. You know, if, if you called me and said, hey, let's meet at 9 um, for coffee at Starbucks, and I said, okay, and they said, hey, get there at 6 just so you can be early, and I'll be there at 9, I'd be like, you're crazy. Like, I'll see you at 8.59. I'll be on time, but I don't like to waste time. But earlier this winter, all of that, all of those circumstances found themselves together in my life because we had a leader in our church, businessman in our city who got invited to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast, um, the leadership luncheon that's a part of that. Thousands of spiritual leaders from all over the world were there. And we got to have breakfast with the President of the United States and a couple thousand pastors from around the world. And they sent us a deal that basically said, on the day of the president, here's the instru- here's, on the day of the presidential breakfast, here are your instructions. Um, you need to wear a suit and tie. You need to be in line at 6 a.m. for a 9 o'clock breakfast because you will wait in a security line anywhere from one hour to two and a half hours. Um, and then when you get in the room, you just sit quietly, and we do not want you to move, even use the bathroom, get it moved around until the president is there and all the security is, is in place. How many of you think that I got that deal and said, I ain't going. I got that deal and I said, Daniel, where's my, where's my suit? Um, because it was the president of the United States. And there's some authority in that office. I mean, regardless of who you voted for, when you get invited to come eat breakfast with the president of the United States, you wear what they tell you, you show up when they tell you to, you send your security stuff in when they tell you to have it there and when you get to the breakfast table and there's only two of you out of eight that even speak english and the food's not there yet you just sit and smile at these people from all over the world even if you have to use the bathroom until the president gets there because that's what they told you to do and you do it with a good attitude because of reverence that's what reverence is and when we look at how we follow this commandment to let God have authority and how we can follow this commandment to let God have priority. You know, this command number three really hits us in what I call our A word, our attitude. 
it hits us right smack in our attitude and says, what is your attitude to the things of God? Is your attitude an attitude of reverence, respect? Is it an attitude of honoring what God says to do? Not in our speech, but in our actions. Do we live in relationship with God in a, in a spirit of extreme reverence? You say, I'm not sure. How can I, how can I know that? Well, our relationship with Jesus is the truest display of our obedience to these commands. Hebrews 1.3 says, if we want to know who God is, we need to look at Jesus. And if we want to know how to interact with God, we need to look at how we interact with Jesus. Because it says the sun is the radiance. That means the reflection of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So you can tell by your relationship with Jesus how much reverence you have for a God that has invited you into relationship. And there's some questions you can ask. Number one, when it comes to questions of reverence, how serious do you take your relationship with Jesus? Is it a big deal to you? Is it a little deal to you? Is it no deal to you? I mean, how serious do you take the fact that you have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus? Number two, how honored are you by access to Jesus? Are you honored enough that if Jesus invited you to breakfast and sent a list of qualifications to get into that breakfast that you really didn't care for and you'd rather not do, but it was Jesus who had invited you into relationship, that you would change everything about your preference to get on Jesus' schedule because of who he is and what he had invited you to? I want you to think about the industry that you serve in, that you live in. If the industry standard of of what you do in life bumped into you at the airport this week and took a liking to you and said, I'd like to pour into your life. And as a matter of fact, every day for the next 365 days, I'd like to talk with you between 6 a.m. and 6.15 a.m. And I just want to pour everything I know about this business into you. Will you you give me a year to pour into you what I know so you can become great in your industry? How many of us would say, no, that's too early? I really don't have time for that. How many of us wouldn't jump at the opportunity to be mentored, to be connected to someone who has proven to be able to do what we're trying to do? And how many of us, when we say, man, get up and spend time with Jesus, we're like, you know, I just, I really don't have time today. That's a reverence problem. Jesus says in Revelation 3, I'm standing at the door of your heart and knocking, and a lot of us are saying, in a minute! I'll be there. We're telling our kids, go get the door. Tell them, tell them to come back. It's a reverence issue. Question number three, what would you endure? What would you change? What price would you pay to be deeply engaged relationally with Jesus? It's a question of reverence. Some of you very honestly would say, not a lot. Like, I'll try to come to church on Sunday. But if it takes more than that, I'm out. Thank you for at least being honest. Because the invitation we've been given into relationship with Jesus carries with it the mandate of reverence. That says, I need you to take it a little more seriously than that. And question number four, does your current relationship with Jesus reflect the spirit of reverence? In how you deal with him and things that you hear about him. Listen, I don't expect anyone in this room to have walked in today living with God as absolute authority, priority, and an absolute reverence. But every Christian that has a soft heart will hear this and think, i got to do better. 
And God might even begin to tell you one or two key areas where you've got to do better. And as a Christian, your job out of reverence and respect is just to figure out how to apply those as quickly as possible. If I could give you the first three commandments in a picture, it'd be this Jesus flow chart behind me. If I could just show you one picture of what commandments one through three look like, it would be like this. Just put Jesus first and let everything else come second. There's your summary. Put Jesus first, let everything else come second, and respond with massive reverence in everything you ever hear or learn from Jesus as he invites you into relationship. Because if we don't have a proper understanding of the first three commandments, if we don't have proper obedience to the first three commandments, it's impossible to live in an an intimate relationship with Jesus because these are his rules. You know, we use the phrase a lot that, that, you know, we want you to invite Jesus into your heart, but the reality of the gospel is that God has invited you into his heart. We haven't found him and said, hey, do you want to be a part of my life? He has found us and said, hey, do you want to be a part of my life? And when we say yes, God says, great. Here's what that looks like. And we see the first three of those seven commandments today. If you've been struggling to feel close to God lately, if you've been struggling to stay close to God, maybe it's because you've got these first three off a little bit. And if you can figure out how to let God be in charge, and you can figure out how to let God be first, and you can figure out how to shape your life in a spirit of reverence, then maybe everything about your relationship with God would change, and you would become God's treasured possession, His special people, His holy nation, as He intends for you and me, us together, to become. That's my prayer for you as we go through this summer.